Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for the 30th episode of The Full Ratchet. We've got a great one today as we talk about the bad actors and predatory practices by investors. Joanne Wilson, one of the creators of the thriving New York City startup scene, joins us today. And with over 70 angel investments to her credit, she is a huge positive force and supporter of entrepreneurs. And these numerous investments are not the 1K angel list investments. She is putting significant capital to work. She's investing in a lot of companies, and she is one of the more generous investors I've met when it comes to spending time and helping out founders. Before we jump into the interview, if you didn't catch last week's episode... I mentioned a project I'm working on with some VCs to create a weekly venture capital magazine. Uh, Every week, I read a lot of content written by VCs and angels, and I figured it might make sense to make a note of the best articles and organize them in an easily readable format. Uh, As I mentioned last week, if this is something that you'd read, shoot me an email. It's nick at fullratchet.net. I've heard from a large number of you and appreciate the emails, but want to make sure it's providing value for a significant number of listeners before I add on another project. Okay, enough of the housekeeping. Here is my interview on the dark side of venture capital. Today, Joanne Wilson joins us from New York City. Many of you know her as the Gotham Gal, as she is an avid producer of content over at GothamGal.com. And she is an active early stage investor with angel investments in more than 50 different startups. Joanne, can you start us off with a little background on how you became involved in startup investing? Yeah, so I was involved in the first generation of the web, which I, you know, would say in the mid '90s. And so when um, you know everyone thought this internet was going to change our world, as it obviously has. And so when I was in that generation of the web and saw some startups of friends that I knew, I did invest in them and got involved in them. And then I sort of got off the track and got out of the business for a while because everyone got out of the business for a while because the entire industry sort of imploded and the re um, came back as we know as web 2.0. And so in that next generation, as I was watching really new companies that were launching on the web that I personally was like reading every single day. So more content oriented I knew of one of them, which was Curb Media, that was raising money. And I decided, you know what? Um, My husband came home one day and said they're raising money. And he said, you know, you should invest in them. You'd be really good at this. And so I called and I did. And then that was the beginnings of a very long career in investing. Wow. And what was the date on that? That was in 2006. 2006. Wow. So over 50 investments in the past, I guess, call it eight years. 70. Yes. 70 now. Wow. Yeah. 
That's great. So, you know, I, a number of times on the podcast, I've had uh, various investors on, and this topic of predatory investing has come up. Uh, whether it be previous angel investors that are getting watered out of cap tables or founders that are really taken advantage of by some of these shadier characters in the business. So I wanted to touch on this today with you. And let's start out with the founder side. So what are some of the activities that you've seen from early stage investors that are predatory toward founders? You know, it's a mix, right? I mean, I'm in a bunch of different businesses, so I see it in a variety of different businesses. But Sometimes you have no choice. So you start a business and you can't raise money and you talk to millions of people and you're very frustrated. No one wants to give you any money. And then all of a sudden, you know, someone shows out of nowhere and says, I'll give you funding. And it's not the terms that you want. And it's maybe not the investors you want, but you decide to take it anyhow because you have no other choice but to move your business forward. Sure. So it's really hard to say to a founder, Maybe there's a reason no one's giving you money. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe no one's giving you money because you're the only person that believes in this business. Yep. That doesn't mean that, um, you know, they evolve or they pivot or something happens and all of a sudden it becomes this huge business. You know, we, we, you hear that very, very, very rarely, but I do think that there is a way that people raise money 15 years ago, which is very different than how they raise money now. I do think it's more entrepreneur friendly. I certainly see term sheets from people that have been in the business for a very long time. And I think to myself, wow, that's a very mid nineties term sheet. And I'm a big believer and a big supporter of entrepreneurs. And I really believe that when you invest in a company, if you think that there is this opportunity and it's going to be big, then we should all do it right together. Don't overvalue yourself. Don't take advantage of anyone. Everyone is, um, I'm taking a risk. I want to help you. You're going to grow the business. And so, you know, we're all in this together. And I think that that's the best way to think about it. Lawyers tend to not do that. Today, for example, I was back and forth with an entrepreneur. Lawyer redid the side letter I had. And I'm just like, no, I'm not signing this. This is basically why I have a side note. (laughs) They're basically now putting in all this thing to make the side note absolutely worthless. So I have no interest in that either. You know, I took all the risk. I'm putting in the money at the beginning. I'm helping you think through your business and the platform. I will not be taken out of the next round by a VC because I'm not putting a minimal $100,000 in. And I won't be taken out in the next round because I don't get to keep my pro rate share. That's not my thesis. Although a lot of angel investors say we put money in the first round and then I'm out. Right. And so I'm being honest from the very get-go. Either I get to follow you continually and decide when I opt out or I'm not interested in putting money in your company. Yeah, I've read on your blog before you talk about this side note. Is that a, uh, a pro rata then that that is sort of a a side document with your investment? That's it. It's two things. It's one is I want to be able to invest at every capital raise as long as I want to stay in the deal. I mean, obviously they get very expensive at one point and I might say, you know what? I'm out. I got enough business and money in this thing and I have enough exposure and I'm still there. I'm still helping you. And I hope that the amount of money I have in there is worth five or 10 or 20 or whatever it is times it's worth as you move forward with your business. But I want to be able to continue to keep that 1% for as long as possible in the business. That's all it is. The second thing it does is 
a lot of companies now do this thing. It's very big in Silicon Valley, whereas you do a note and let's say the note is at $5 million cap. And then you decide, oh my God, I need more money. We'll just put more money on this note, but we'll raise it to an $8 million cap. Oh my God, I need more money again. I'm going to raise more money on this note with the $10 million cap. Notes on top of notes, right? Well, it's ridiculous because then you go out and you raise your Series A and everyone in the original node converts, but then you aren't converting at what you thought you put money in at. Right. So if you put money in and you thought $5 million cap, totally cool, I'm in 50, I own 1%. Oh, guess what? You don't because it's a blend. So now all of a sudden you don't own 1%, you own 0.7%. And to me, that's absolute bullshit. And you are screwing your original investors that gave you the money in the first place. Is there a way to write in clauses on your convertible so that the cap always applies in the event of a subsequent convertible? Sure. That's why I get a side note. (laughs) Right. Okay. Got it. Nothing standard. It's all about the legal documents. So you had mentioned earlier that there's kind of a big gap between the way things were done in the 90s versus now. Uh, What are some of those key things that jump out at you as moving toward this more equitable, appropriate, and founder-friendly environment? Well, you know, I wasn't doing really that kind of investing back then, but I just know that it was, it's a little more, it's less entrepreneur-friendly and more investor-friendly in regards to specific warrants, percentage of interest, when you have to convert. I mean, all those kind of things, they're really just different. And there's a lot more money out there now. So in many ways, the entrepreneurs who have really great businesses do have more negotiating power. But I think that the deals, you didn't see as many notes as you do now. It was much more equity driven. It is equity driven on a note too, but it just takes to the first really big round so that everyone converts into equity. And the reality is either you move forward or you don't. So if it's a note or it's an equity round, it doesn't really make any difference. (laughs) But I just think it's much more entrepreneur friendly and it should be. Everybody should come to the table and feel when they walk away, we feel good about the deal we got. So aside from hiring a a great attorney, what are some of the actionable measures that you would recommend founders take in order to prevent getting taken advantage of? I think you only want to sell 20% of your company at each round. And you're seeing more 25 and 30, and it depends on the company. Hard goods needs a lot more um, uh, capital in order to succeed. And so it's really hard to only raise and sell 20% of your company unless you are going through the roof. I think that it is those kind of things, as long as expectations are set for everyone. I mean, the real, I really do believe at the beginning, a lot of entrepreneurs get carried away with like, you know, their valuation. And if you don't start it right at the beginning, you end up in a bad place very, very quickly. If you can't raise more, Uh, you can't raise money at a higher valuation than your first round. Right. And so, you know, when I say to people, well, you should be between three and a half and five on your first seed round, you know, a lot of people, I want to be at six. It's like, why? First of all, you never run a company. Second of all, you have no provenance. And third of all, you know, you're not really showing any massive traction that you deserve to be at six. Right. But you're at six. That means you have to be at seven when you raise money on your next round. And so why put yourself in that position if you really believe this is going to be a hundred, two hundred million dollar company. Do it right. You know, a lot of people I think at the beginning are like, oh, they want to be really generous with all their employees, which is great. But you have to remember there's a reason why many of these things are set up the way they are, why there's an option pool for so much, why you see consistency among 
you know, your, your CTO versus your first programmer versus your head of marketing versus your head of sales, what kind of percentage of the company they get at different time periods based on their seniority. Because to people that don't understand it, coming to light is over 10% of the company. Actually, <laughs> and here's why. And so I think it's an education. I've spoken with a number of founders out there that they're trying to justify these eight to $10 million valuations at the seed stage because the opportunity is so huge and because it's, you know, multi-billion dollar unicorn potential. And, you know, I got to break it to them. Every opportunity I'm looking at is, is a big opportunity. You know, it, you, right. that doesn't differentiate you. What differentiates is product market fit and traction and proof of concept and some of these other factors. Right. I mean, it, it takes time to get to there. And there's more than a handful of companies that I'm invested in now that are going to have five million, excuse me, a $5 million raise with the $20 million pre, which is 20% of their business. And I'm thrilled for them. Yeah. And it's a while to get there. But now that they're there, the company is set. The foundation is set. The team is set. The traction is set. And you are just really are just multiplying on what you have built and grabbing real estate in a much healthier way and bringing in a ridiculous amount of money early on with a, a set price that is not easy to realize. You're just, you know, I think everyone can go to sleep at night. You know, speaking of which, this is a little off topic, but have you ever been in a scenario where a subsequent VC comes in and they offer to buy out your share, um, give you liquidity, and uh, maybe you don't like the the direction that the terms are going or you have concerns about some of the downstream financing and you've exited early? You know, I haven't, but I have seen people do that. There was one company in particular that we had a friend that was in and they were given the opportunity to get out. And my gut, as well as my husband's, was like, sell now. <laughs> So, you know, I do think that, you know, at each turn, you have to look at the valuation, where the company is at, what the industry is telling you, every single pinpoint, and make that decision based on what you are looking to do. I mean, I learned this way, way, way back in, uh, I mean, in college, you know, in, when I was in this class of buying stocks, and someone said, this professor was like, you should not hold on to your stock like long lost lovers. <laughs> you no, know, if it's time, it's time. And I, I really like that. Um, you know, I, I just even think that even as, you know, my husband and I, you know, even though I've only been investing for like nine years now, he's been in the venture capital business for 25, 30 years, is that we have been in the business of investing in startup companies and following them through. And when they get to a point where they go public or they're sold, we slowly get out of those businesses because that's not what we're good at. We're not stock traders. We are <laughs> business growers. And so I, I think that it's important to know what you're looking for. Probably pretty clear at this point to most of my listeners, but your husband is Fred Wilson. So quite a pair I'm sure you two must make and it's got to help trade notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move over to the investor side. What are some of the things that later stage VCs can do to either eliminate or water out an early stage angel's equity position? Well, you know, most of the time they come in and they say, if the company's doing great, we're taking the whole round and that's it. I used this analogy with someone the other day and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that again, which is if you've ever built property from scratch, the very beginning when you're building that property and you're sitting down with the architect and you're figuring out 
how it's going to look, what your rooms are going to look like and all that. And you bid on the property and then you decide on a contractor. And then you move from the architect really to the contract. Even though the architect is still involved, the person to trust now is your contractor. <laughs> because they build places. Architects don't build, they create. It's a very big difference. And so I think of it as the same way if you're an entrepreneur and all of a sudden some big VC comes in and says, hey, we're going to give you this much. Here's what we're going to do for you. You know, now we're on your board. We're taking, we're going to help you build this company. It's very hard for an entrepreneur to say, wait a second, I have 10 people from my original investment that want to bring in more money or my prorate, the prorate rights, and I'm going to let them in. And it's only, by the way, $250,000 of this $20 million round, and that's the right thing to do. And they've been with me for the beginning. And I think that is the right thing to do if they want to invest. Now, I've seen this one company where someone came back in. He was so excited what was going on. He wanted to put in five times his prorate share. And so the entrepreneur said to me, what should I do? And I said, screw him. You know what? He gets his prorated rights and that's it. And by the way, it wasn't like he helped you at all from there to now. You know, if someone who had been talking to you all the time, not that I want to boost myself, but I was on the board. I sat with her all the time. I talked to her all the time. I was always available to her. If I said to her, oh, my God, I want to triple what I put in or quadruple or five times, you would want to take my money because I've done so right by you. So it's a very... Yeah, I'm always confused when there's a great marriage between potential investor and founder, very well aligned on experience, you know, access to customers, ability to help fundraise. And then the founder says, you know what, I don't want to give you a pro rata right. I just don't understand why they would use that as a bargaining tool because I don't see the the negative impact it would be for a founder. It's, I don't get it. You know, there was this one company that she literally went out of her way to find me. And I decided to invest. I want her to sign my side letter. She was like, you got to put the money in now this week because I have a major VC coming into this thing. And so I knew the VC, so I could have gotten probably in on the second round too. I mean, and I also am not your normal in terms of getting my side letter because I'm known in the industry. I know all the players. So, you know, I don't think anyone's going to screw me necessarily, although you never know. So she took my money and she didn't sign the side letter. A week later, I'm like, hey, you didn't sign the side letter. I know this next round's coming in. I want to make sure you sign it. And she said, no, no, no. My lawyer says I can't sign it because you can't have it going forward. The next VCs won't like that. And I thought to myself, wow, red flag. You are the entrepreneur of this company. You don't have enough balls to say to your lawyer, hey, wait a second. I went out of my way to find this woman. I want her because I know she's going to help me. There's no other woman in this entire deal. It's all a bunch of men. I need someone that I can fall back and have conversations with about different things. And I said to her, you know what? Wire me back the money today. I'm out. Wow. And and she's like, really? I can't believe it. I so trust you. You know, I really want your respect, but you have to understand. I said, wire me the money by five o'clock today. Wow. Out. That'll teach you a lesson. I just feel like, you know, there's always another great deal coming in the door these days. And that's my thesis. And I don't want to be involved in businesses where here's my money first round. See ya. It's not how I operate. 
Wow. So I'm still new to this. I've I've been involved for about a year and a half. But recently I heard this story about uh, an investor that I could I can't remember if they had common stock, no dilution protections, but a subsequent VC came in in a subsequent round and they reduced the price per share down to something that diluted out all the previous investors. And then they covered the startup by granting a bunch more equity uh, employee options. Have you ever heard of this happening? This was sort of a strange scenario, and it got me a little concerned about some sort of later stage predatory VCs. That sounds like a really scumbag VC move. I mean, does it have to do with the fact that the business wasn't doing well and they needed to bring in a lower valuation or they just wanted to get everyone out and take it all to themselves? I believe they were trying to take everything for themselves because the previous investors wanted to retain their percentage ownership and uh, they were watered out. Shame on the VC and also shame on the entrepreneur. Good point. You know, I mean, if that's the kind of business you want to, is that how you want to do business with the people? I mean, you know, there's a lot of dating that goes on before you put money into the company. And the once you put money into that company, you're pretty much married to it. Nothing's changing. It's like buying a house. You can smash the house down and rebuild the house, but the house is never moving. And so I wouldn't want to be in business with that kind of person. So from a term standpoint, are there any key things, whether it be in your side note or the, uh, the equity or convertible note investment itself that you would recommend early stage angels pay particular attention to to make sure that they are protecting their position? I mean, I, I think you have, first of all, you should have a lawyer, number one. You should always have a lawyer read your documents. And your lawyer, you should think of as an early partner to say to your lawyer, these are the things I care about. I care about prorated rights. I care about um, anti-dilution on a note that's going to keep going on into eternity. I care about the um, interest rates that I'm going to get. I care about when this thing is going to be converted. If they don't get more money in 18 months, I want my money back. I mean, there's a million things that are important to you, right? And so I think it's the same thing as, as an investor. Like I had a talk with someone about this today. What verticals do you want to invest in? And what are you looking at in terms of building your own portfolio? What's the importance? Are you interested in just putting in money once and calling it a day? Do you want to follow deals? Do you only have want to follow once? I mean, you have to know exactly what your thesis is sure. in order to make a decision based on those documents. And so if it doesn't fall into what makes sense to you, then you can say, okay, that's not right because that's not how I do business. Yep. We uh, are in the middle of a, se- a special series on best practices right now and hammering home those points around, you know, develop the strategy, develop a thesis, understand if you're going to do seed only and follow ons. So it's great hearing that you also are supporting these points. But anyway, Joanne, how has your approach evolved throughout your investing history and how has it changed in the recent years since you've gotten some experience? I hate to use the Malcolm Gladwell theory, but um, I will because it's one that's easily understood, which is if you do something for enough hours, you become pretty good at it. I think the at one point, you know, I went back and looked at some of the early investments I made and I wondered, you know, if they walked in my door today, would I invest in them? So I think that I've gotten better at looking at red flags. Uh, sometimes I, I know there's one and I just can't figure out what it is. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I was just like, there's something you're like, there's a reason why I'm not saying yes here, but I got I would just want to figure out what, what it is. 
And I think the more you do it, you get better at it. I mean, the one thing that I love about this particular business is that to be able to spend all day talking to super bright people that are trying to build something and change the way they live their lives or how we live our lives is incredibly lucky to be able to do that. The other thing is, is that the more you do anything, the better you get at it. But in this particular business, even though every deal is different, every entrepreneur is different, certainly at the beginning, they're all similar. You've got to hire the right team. You've got to get the traction. But each of them take on a life of their own. And besides meeting a variety of super smart people, very different entrepreneurs, they all have very different business models and cultures that have set the tone for their businesses. And I think to me, that is really fascinating. And it's just great to be able to be part of that. I mean, I've created this Google group with all the investors investments I've made, and it's sort of taken on this life of its own. They all talk to each other. They all meet with each other. They create, um, they just had a meeting in San Francisco, a handful of them. There was one in New York. One of them is going to use the group to do this market study. And, you know, it's super cool because, you know, I say I'm not a VC, but I play when I'm TV, but there is something about the community of all these people because they're all coming at at a very different angle, but they have a lot of the same issues. And as founders, they can have those conversations. So every day is different. And I think that's what I, I think is the most interesting thing of this business. Sort of the Joanne Wilson incubator accelerator, huh? Correct. <laughs> Although I will say I was in Berlin this week and someone is running one essentially. And the amount of percentage they take of that biz- those businesses at the very beginning is insane because you can get away with it over there. Not much longer. But I said, damn, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> I should set up shop for everyone in my office. <laughs> yeah, free equity, right? Yeah, exactly. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. All right. So we had Ann Winblad on the program, and I sort of missed my opportunity to talk about the role of women a little bit. So I wanted to quickly address the role of women, both on the investment side and the founder side, as you do a great deal of work with women throughout the ecosystem. Generally, what is your take on the gender balance in venture, and how has it changed 
And also, what specific things are you involved in to help promote the role of women? Yeah, there's no doubt it is a heavily male-oriented community, although each city is different. I see more women in New York and more women that are applauded in New York than I hear about out in the Valley. Um, I was at an event in Berlin this week, and there was not even a question. It was heavily male-influenced an evening event, but, you know, Remember that women tend to network differently than their male counterparts as well. And so if they're married, they usually go home, they go see their friends, and they're not as much interested in spending after they close shop at the end of the day. They go home and they might work, but they're not going to an event to spend more time on their business. So it's a very different networking. And their businesses tend to be different as well. I mean, that's a pure judgment. There are plenty of businesses that are run by and started by women that are in very heavily tech male dominated areas. It's just not as many. But I think we are seeing the shift. I think the next revolution will really be run by women. If you look at e-commerce or content, but e-commerce in particular, 85% of the decisions that are made on purchasing on the web are influenced by women. Right. And so, you know, why you would want to invest in e-commerce business where a woman is not involved at the very top is beyond me because Women attempt to, it seems to me that women rule the web in regards to execution on e-commerce. So I do think that when more women who have been invested in in the past half, five years, 10 years, become household names with household products that become public, that get purchased, and it's not just the same few handful of women that we hear about. And many of those women aren't entrepreneurs. You know, they came in, they were hired they're phenomenal COOs or they're phenomenal CEOs, but it wasn't their business. They didn't start that business. Mm. But see more of these women entrepreneurs rise to the point where, you know, wow, they have built a hundred or two hundred million dollar business. I think then we will then see a shift in regards to what gets invested because it really has a lot to do with the investing and only of the active VCs in the in the US, four point four percent of them are women. It's very, very low. It's very hard to get someone on the other side of the table who's a guy to connect with you and believe in what you're building. And I do think in the end of the day, if your business is fantastic and your numbers are there, you'll find the right money. I just think it's a lot more difficult. And one of the things that I've done is put on this conference every year at NYU called the Women's Entrepreneur Festival, which really highlights women entrepreneurs and what they're doing, what they're building. And the people on the panels are all women. The moderators are all women. The speakers are all women. And the women on the panels usually run from series A to series C. So I think because of that, the women in the audience can really connect to those women on the panels because they say to themselves, well, damn, I could do that. That's not like someone who has made a billion dollar exit. That's someone that they're not that far ahead of me. So the conference is, is we call it a festival, is very interactive. We charge $350 for a ticket, and that means real entrepreneurs come to these events, not $1,800, $2,400, which is being paid by a company. And so I think that has been a real big movement. But I think we were ahead of the game, but I think we're seeing more and more of that right now, that we aren't the only singular one doing stuff like that for women. Any other organizations outside of New York or suggestions on ways that we all can help sort of promote an appropriate gender balance for this industry? You know, I, 
There's a lot of groups out there around the country that are angel investors or meetups where they're meeting young entrepreneurs. But I really think that if you, it's like when colleges were forced to bring in so many people that didn't have money or came from different socioeconomic backgrounds or, you know, religions or whatever it may be, they were forced to bring in people to their schools where a bunch of rich white kids. That was a really good thing because it made them think about the diversity of every single class and what is this class going to look like five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. And it made an impact in our country. I think it's the same thing with the business. When you start a business, you need to say to yourself, okay, how are we going to get to 50-50 gender balance in this business? Let's make sure we, we don't have enough women now or we don't have enough men. I mean, I've made a conscious decision to invest in women. I've made a conscious decision to seek out African-Americans. I've made a conscious decision to seek out other people besides white men. And, you know, when you go to one of the meetups among all the companies I'm invested in, you can tell. It's very easy to just create a panel and put a bunch of men on it that you see on the Internet and you know their names. It takes an extra step of effort to find the other people out there that are probably just as qualified, if not more, that would create more interesting conversation to put at these events. But you got to work at it. Sure. So to round things out, we got a few minutes left here. Joanne, what are you currently most focused on? Too much. (laughs) 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 You know, I'm very ramped up and I have a bunch of also personal projects in the fire. And I'm just trying, I'm really, I always talk about balance and how difficult it is. Obviously, I like being unbalanced because now that my kids are all gone, I mean, I'm all business all the time. And the nice thing is, is that because we're in this business, we can take our business on the road and we can do it wherever we are. So I think that is what we're trying to figure out what that's going to look like. If we could cover any topic in venture investing, what topic do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak on it? Good question. I'd be very interested in hearing what the philosophies are behind different funds. You know, every fund is so different and the way that they vote is so different. You know, you have some VC firms that they all have to agree on the deal. You have others where, you know, you just need one other person to support you. If you're a micro fund, what do you do? Do you follow on three rounds? Do you only do one round? You know, how do you go about it? I think that would be really interesting to kind of know what goes behind the walls. I do think that there is a tremendous opportunity for the $30 million funds because it takes less money to start and build businesses. I think a lot of these companies that we're building now are way overvalued. And it concerns me that we're building these humongous companies with tons of people that are not all really doing a full job. They're doing like half jobs because they have to hire so many people. And that That means that we're going back to what we tried to disrupt in the first place was, do you really need like millions of people working for one company to make it a really successful, profitable business? And it does concern me about how much money is out there and what these valuations are at. So I'm a big fan of Gotham Gal, but what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? You know, my email is right there on my site. I pretty much answer every email. I really do. And I'll say, you know, thanks for sharing. I read, I looked, it's not for me, best of luck, or even advice. I mean, I, I've i heard from some one woman the other week who's like, you know, you're perfect for me. And I was just like, great, but you have no business yet. You just have an idea. I don't have the time to talk to you. 
but I am going to give you some advice, which you can take or leave. Get rid of your AOL email and get a Gmail account. Yeah. <laughs> or no one's going to take you seriously. So I do think that, you know, I, I, I do answer every email and, um, and I have certainly invested in businesses that have called, called me and I thought it was interesting and I met with them. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you just returned from Europe and uh, we really appreciate you making the time for us today. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. So great to get Joanne on the show to share her time with us. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Number one is stacked notes. Joanne talked about this emerging occurrence of startups that raise a convertible at a certain cap and subsequently proceed to raise additional convertibles at a higher and higher cap instead of doing a traditional price round. The challenge for early investors is that upon conversion, the original terms are no longer fixed and the cap does not apply as initially laid out. Depending on the number of convertibles in the stack and the valuation cap amounts and or discounts at each, the riskiest capital may not be rewarded for the risk taken. And it's often not the founders that are trying to hurt their early investors, but rather the lead VC that comes in at a subsequent round. If they see an opportunity to lower the eventual equity of other investors, they may structure the round as such. All angels should be wary of this, as the stack convertible seems to be becoming more and more common. As Joanne advised, a side note or document that protects the seed investor from cap dilution at a subsequent convertible raise can be a great way to protect against this. The second major key takeaway is called how much to sell. Joanne had a simple recommendation for founders when it comes to the amount of equity sold at each round. She said, you only want to sell 20% of your company at each round. We've talked about this in the past, but Joanne's perspective was unique. If you think about it, every startup that doesn't exit fails because it runs out of money. There are a myriad of reasons why a startup runs out of money, but why let an overinflated valuation be one? I wish there was a study on this so that I could cite some data because I would love to see some figures on the number of startups that have product market fit, a viable business model, a compelling growth trajectory, but have to wind down the business due to an inability to raise because of a previous inflated valuation. Of course, the alternative to setting too high a valuation to get more money is to set the appropriate valuation, but to give away more equity in exchange for more cash. So in this case, the founders are going to sell a higher percentage of the business during the round at hand. Again, if there's not enough equity in later rounds for investors, they will pass. And if the founders continue to give away too much, the cap table may be unfixable if they don't have enough of the business to stay motivated and or there's nothing left to sell in exchange for equity. The third and final takeaway is called the role of women as a consumer. I've seen some stats on this now from a few startups about the percentage of online transactions completed by women versus men. Joanne mentioned that about 85% of all online transactions are completed or influenced by women. This is not a recommendation to ignore men when it comes to e-commerce. But whether your target user is an adult woman, a man, or a child, you'd be neglecting a major aspect of user acquisition to ignore the role of women as a purchaser. In the tip of the week on episode 6, we discussed the importance of startups that know the difference between users and purchasers. Clearly, if you are reviewing a startup in e-commerce, it is evident that regardless of target market, the role of women as a purchaser must be well understood. 
All right, let's wrap up with the tip of the week. This week's tip is called the value-added investor. Joanne mentioned this point about creating a Google group for all the entrepreneurs that she has invested in. And this group has evolved into a nationwide collaborative atmosphere for its constituents. In previous episodes, we've talked about the benefits of accelerator and incubator communities, but we haven't addressed the offline, unformalized embodiments of incubators. As much as an investor can help a startup, other founders, maybe even more so, can benefit from a community of like-minded, driven individuals. When I think of an investor's post-investment contribution to a startup, I don't think of an investor as the difference between success and failure. But I do see three areas where they contribute. Number one is speed. So speed in accessing additional capital, customers, or maybe partners. Number two is cost identifying suppliers, service providers, and capital contributors at a competitive and fair rate. And number three is support. So coaching, mentoring, and listening throughout the many challenges that founders face. And as I think about these three areas and Joanne's approach, not only does she help as an investor, but she's created a powerful crowdsourced community to do it as well. And I would argue that a strong community of entrepreneurs such as hers will probably help each other more so than any investor. We discuss this notion of the portfolio many times, where the best of angels will have a target to invest in 10, 20, or 30 companies. We all won't have 70 significant investments like Joanne, but we can aspire to create a portfolio, help our entrepreneurs, and empower them to help each other. That will wrap up today's episode. If you're a fan of the guests and the topics we cover, shoot out a link to the show on your favorite social media site or give me a review on iTunes. Thanks again to all the folks who have done so so far and or suggested topics and guests for the show. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for listening. 